Hello, and welcome to History Reconsidered, a podcast dedicated to taking a deep dive into historical issues and events and relating them to the modern world. I'm your host, Jarrett Stepman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Samantra Maitra. And on this week's episode, we begin a three-part series on the French Revolution and the rise and fall of Napoleon. Um, I think that, that in the case of Napoleon and the French Revolution, I think that there's a lot of misconceptions out in the public, certainly about uh, the revolution and what it meant in human history, and especially, I think, in its relation to the United States and the American Revolution. And I think that's where we wanted to begin our episode, which I think there was a, a very interesting quote uh, by the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, that happened on Bastille Day in 2023 in July, in which he sent out a tweet saying, the war of independence and the French Revolution were fueled by the same aspirations for freedom, democracy, and human rights, which I thought was very interesting because I would say that the French Revolution and the American Revolution were distinctly different events and had different motivations and, of course, uh, different endpoints, which we'll certainly discuss on this episode. And I think it's important because, of course, this is a man who's secretary of state. This is a very, I think, common notion in, in many of our elite schools that there is uh, a direct uh, comparison between the French and American Revolution. Uh, but it's based on a lot of uh, misnotions, wouldn't you say? Oh, I absolutely agree. I mean, I that quote was shocking. And I think you laid it out in a in a perfect way. You know, first of all, the French Revolution is such a huge event in human history that to just talk about the revolution in one episode is a is a is a task that no historian should even try and attempt. Um, part of the re reason why we are doing this uh, a very short episode on French Revolution and then kind of like moving to Napoleon is because we are setting up uh, to the Napoleon's episode, which is the primary thrust of the next three episodes. But we we will we will obviously come back uh, to this topic of French Revolution. But what you said is important because it is such a momentous event in human history. Uh, fundamentally, modern system and modern life started with the the idea of the French Revolution. It was the culmination of the first genuine war, which is a result of socioeconomic problems and industrial revolution. It is also completely related to the American Revolution, but not in the way Anthony Blinken thinks about it. It's because of the French success in the American Revolution, but the reason they got broke, you know, and, and part of the reason why they couldn't reform. But we're going to talk more about that later on anyway. But most importantly, our idea of modern state systems happened in the aftermath of French Revolution. Our idea of modern dictatorships happened because of the French Revolution. Our idea of modern rule of law and the continental system happened because of the French Revolution. Our idea of left and right comes from the French Revolution. And most importantly, our idea of addresses marked on both sides, the odd numbers on one side and the even numbers on one side, is basically because of Napoleon. So that results <laughs> from the French Revolution. Every single thing around us, our modern life, or the way of life that we lead, is some way or the other related to those tumultuous years in Europe. And I think that's and 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 to and I, I I am completely humble about this thing, you know. I obviously we are gonna <laughs> we are gonna be we we it's not humanely possible to touch upon a subject like French Revolution and the and the rise and fall of Napoleon, but we are gonna we're gonna try and try and lead up to to these three episodes and kind of like see where it goes. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's a very good point, and I think it's it's important to understand too. It's uh, you know when when talking about. The historical legacy of the French Revolution, I think you put it very well, and how much it relates to everything in in our modern lives, um, you know, what it unleashed in Europe, how it, it really created many nations out of out of a time in which, look, there's there's a huge separation between the, the war or the world before the, the revolution, the wars that followed and the, the world that followed after that. There's, you know, things were were change forever you could say in both good and bad ways and i think that's an important thing to understand uh with this is that you know the world was was radically changed and some things uh, certainly unleashed by the revolution were catastrophic and violent i mean this is you know one of the most i think 
violent events, certainly by population in, in European history and really world history. Um, but it's that's not to say that everything that predated the French Revolution was just uh, you know wonderful and uh, this was some kind of utopia before then. There were there were a lot of problems uh, in France and through Europe that led to essentially the radicalism that we saw during the revolution, that the violence and bloodshed, and of course the, the wars that, that came later. Um, but I, I think that it's important to lay out first, of course, when we're getting into kind of the origins of the French revolution, and there are many origins. I think it's important, of course, to, to take a step back on the original origin, which um, it was unleashed by the American revolution. And in part because of, French aid to the United States in what was the the uh, British colonies, American colonies that were, of course, breaking off uh, from Great Britain and, and, and part of the historical forces that were unleashed by an American revolution. I would say an American revolution that had very different beginnings and, of course, was carried out by a very different people. And I think that that's an important thing to understand uh, when we think about these these two movements is the, the very real differences between the attitudes and the longstanding traditions of, of Americans versus the French and the world that they lived in. Now, I think there really is something to the idea of a, a kind of national character. I mean, there is something to it. Yes, values and principles are very much so, uh, can be universal around the globe, but certain countries and certain peoples uh, have a different way of looking at things. And so a, a, some, a similar event could be interpreted in very different ways and, of course, be carried out in very different ways by, by different people. I think in, in the case of the American Revolution, of course, being triggered by what they saw as a series of abuses by Parliament and the king did not start as a, a radical revolution to uh, level the classes in the way that it was in the French Revolution. It was very much a, a revolution on the side of of self self determination and self government, which of course led to there was of course a long standing debate in the, you could say the Anglo world uh, about representation, which led to the American Revolution, the separation of the colonies uh, from England, from Britain. Um, very different set of circumstances uh, in France, where you do have a huge amount of uh, class difference, which I think is very important to understanding. The French Revolution, the the various, even though it was a, a society that was, in many cases, culturally um, more similar. I mean, people were very similar. There was quite vicious, I think, class distinctions that didn't really exist in in the American colonies, and they certainly existed in the old world in a way that I would say, even even compared to England, I would say that there were there were larger class differences. Um, and I think that really drove a lot of the resentment and, of course, the explosion uh, that took place when, of course, the elites in French society, uh, including the king, called for the state general uh, and brought together the various classes of society, which, of course, led to the unleashing of this revolution. Yeah, no, I, I think I think you've 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 perfectly stated the 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 idea of the state general. I mean, I, I it it's always baffles me when someone calls uh, Louis uh, a tyrant because he was incidentally a man who's not really very good at taking decisions. Like he, one of the reasons why he called the state general is because he wanted to avoid bloodshed, and that in a way kind of like caused his own own failure and collapse and doom. Um, I think I would go back even further to the to the causes of the French. So the, the fundamental socioeconomic cause is the one which is popular among the general masses. Like, you know, French, France was a society which is impoverished. And that's one of the reasons why they lead to a revolution. Like that is the, the I mean, that is the, that's the standard, you know, <laughs> idea. Even the Marxist kind of thing, like the French revolutions didn't really go too far. Like that was Lenin's idea that you know it was it, it was it was a good revolution, but it wasn't really of the proletarians. They should have even gone further. But did uh, I personally think there are for, like, more you know philosophical causes of the French Revolution, or of course religious causes of the French Revolution? I'll give you a couple of examples, and you can you can you can we can discuss that more uh, in, in in the coming hours. Um, in the Seven Years' War, 
between Britain and France before the American Revolution was fundamentally, it, it was the first global world war between two major powers, in a way, which was fought in different parts of the world, and especially in the, in, in the American continent. What we don't often harp much about in this context is it was also a war between two very different worldviews. The Anglo-American worldview, even the, you know, the, one of the reasons why the, you know, the American Revolution happened later on was fundamentally a very Anglican, Puritan idea of liberty, which is opposed to the kind of French concept of liberty, whereas France, incidentally, because being, a, you know, it was a, it was a Catholic power, it, it quite literally had two very different systems one the religious system which is universalist because they have to listen to the pope because they're catholics but on the other hand they had this divine right of kings which kind of creates this parallel system where the king is you know a, a, a center of power and the and the catholic clergy is another center of power and they're kind of like married together to have the french state uh, uh, under richelieu like richelieu was the first one who started that to have this idea of French power. But during the Seven Years' War, England didn't face that problem. England had a state church. It was merged with, with the, the, the monarchy, the idea of the monarchy. And because uh, the state church was merged with the idea of monarchy, in, in a funny way, it was kind of integral uh, in, the, in the formation of the English state. Now, that has phenomenal you know, uh, effect in the idea of the American Revolution, too, the, the Americans at that point of time was fundamentally English in their in their worldview, in their in their legal yeah. system, in their in their in, in everything that they think about. Now, uh, the the Americans wanted to replace the idea of one single monarch and go back to the original English Revolution, the Glorious Revolution, uh, and 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 the English Commonwealth uh, before that. Um, to have this idea of, of an elite, uh, a Republican elite, kind of like Republican Rome, and take over. So they, the, the, it, it was more of a power transfer between a different set of elite without changing the baseline uh, of, of religious freedom and all that kind of stuff. Whereas, the, whereas in France, because France was such a stifled country, because they didn't have, because they had parallel structures going on. On one hand, they have this absolute divine monarchy, which you cannot criticize technically. Although, by the way, because it is a monarchy and because the monarch cannot have its own power, he's dependent on the feudal lords, which creates again this entire complete cluster where, where you know, the monarch is technically the head of the state, but he has literally no power, and the and the nobles are completely decadent. And they do whatever they want to do. And this, it's, it's, it's this entire system of bureaucracy, for example, in France. They have the system of tolls. You know, they, there is no, they, they don't, they cannot, industry, when there's industrial revolution happening in England, for example, they cannot do that in France because they cannot collect land to create right. industries because the lands were under feudal lords. And they were like, no, we, hey, so they were pointing to the divine right of the kings. The king was pointing to the nobles. You know, there was, there was this complete paralysis of, of politics. And on the other hand, there was this Catholic clergy, which is technically the baseline of France, but they also don't really control the king, which means there were other, you know, liberal ideas spreading in, in France with, with the Freemasons being more liberal. So Robespierre was a Freemason, by the way. So he was like, you know, we, we, have, we, we believe in God, but we also believe in a very deistic God and not like a, you know, like a Catholic God, not, you know, so, so there's this whole system of political and ideological theology, which was kind of like a powder keg under the French society, and it was waiting to explode. So that, I think, is the baseline from where we have to view the French Revolution more than the socioeconomic problem. I think it's the ideological revolution that happened before. Yeah, I, I think it, it, it's much more of a you could say more of a social revolution that, that takes place in France. And of course there was a huge amount of centralization that existed under, under the ancient regime right. that was very different uh, to, to the ethos, the, the kind of Anglo American ethos. It was just, it yep. was a, a kind of foreign thing. And of course there had been a lot of centralization, you know, starting under Louis the 14th 
um, that where most of the the elite nobles in society were now clustered around Versailles. It was done very intentionally to keep them under control because that's how you control the country. Uh, and there was again, there was a a kind of vicious class difference. But to, to say that it was based on poverty, I would say is wrong. In fact, I would say that many of those who sparked and started the revolution were actually those who were fairly well off and those yeah. who were actually among uh, the elements of society that were successful but felt that the system as it was created was stifling them, was making it impossible right. for them to rise. And, with, and it, I think it is a very strong warning that in any society, the idea of keeping down uh, those who are successful or intelligent, ambitious, and keeping them in a state in which they don't have even the ability to rise, I think any society with those conditions is asking for trouble, is asking for potentially a revolutionary state in its affairs. You can't just continue on suppressing a good part of your population that may be the most ambitious and talented and, and one that would naturally rise in any system. Uh, you can't keep that down forever. And I think there was a very much an attitude that existed that in France that even if you even if you achieved a certain amount of success, if you weren't part of the the noble class, you will just not you you won't go anywhere. You can you can't go to a set to a certain extent. This these conditions, even though, for instance, in British society, there there were certainly class distinctions. I think something that is something that that separates this, even historically is that it was much easier for, for instance, for a talented, ambitious man who did not come from, let's say, a noble family or an elite family to marry into one if he was talented and ambitious. This was very uncommon uh, in France. And I think oftentimes these kind of rules around even things like, like marriage oftentimes have huge impact on whether society becomes radicalized. This is actually very similar to how Japan during the Meiji Restoration during the 19th century saved yep. off revolutionary fervor because they allowed uh, talented, ambitious people to marry into the samurai class. So they got people who had mercantile skills and combined that with being a part of the nobility, the aristocracy. So you had a sort of natural aristocracy that developed around, yes, the aristocracy has certain duties and obligations and noblesse oblige, uh, but also if you are from a class that comes from below, you can rise into that. And that's, I think, an important element that existed in Anglo-American society that, especially just before the, the French Revolution, didn't really, I think, really exploded into a great deal of resentment uh, from, from the classes that felt that they were, they were basically neglected and, and the forgotten men of French society, leading to, of course, the explosion of discontent during the calling of the estate general by by King Louis the Sixteenth, as France headed into financial trouble following the American Revolution, that the aid that they gave to the eventual United States, uh, and the explosion of the, especially the Third Estate, which was made up of the commoners. There were there were essentially three estates. There was the noble right. class, there was the clergy class, then there was the kind of like commoners, and you could say even the the, the middle classes, and that's where a lot of the yeah. dis discontent came from, and that's where the revolution foments into a much larger uh explosive phenomenon started by the that, elites and then carried out by by the the lower and middle classes and then eventually the mob of paris yeah the the, the you're, you're right the what barks mentioned the bankers and the lawyers uh to be to be the uh the third you know the fomenting the class that foments the revolution you're absolutely right i think i think um one thing which i would add to that is uh the idea that humans were essentially fundamentally free. Um, the the Rousseauian the Rousseauian idea of 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 humans being fundamentally good, not just free, uh, is also uh, was also a huge change uh, in the way we. I mean, the American Revolution and both you know before that the Puritan England and the Puritans then fled to America uh, fundamentally didn't view humans to be free or especially not good like the, the 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 central idea was still like humans are flawed and sinful and you know right. we have to strive and 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 be better whereas these guys you know came to power and you know rousseau and all these people kind of like came out with this idea that humans are essentially good people 
And the only thing they are being bound by are by forces of boundaries of authority and whether it's like boundaries of the state or boundaries of, you know, human, you know, denominations or boundaries of religion or boundaries of even, of you know, social hierarchy. And the idea that the French liberty opposed the Anglo-American liberty was the Anglo-American liberty was a positive idea of liberty that you can do something and that would make you be virtuous. Right. So you can have a freedom of religion because at the end of the day, the idea was to be virtuous in life. Whereas the French idea of liberty was a negative liberty that you're not bound, you're, you're not tied by anything. You know, so you, you don't have anything to stop you from doing from anything. So I think that's a that's a fundamental theological difference. Every single yeah. idea, like as we say, every single war is theological. So this is the this was one of the fundamental theological differences between the French, which is one of the reasons also that the amount of violence that happened, and which we're going to discuss more in France, wasn't the amount of violence that we saw in, in America. You know, even when they were like, you know, butchering each other's armies and, and, and you know, uh, but they were fundamentally fighting, you know, a war between kings. Uh, whereas in the right. in, in France, there was this uh, the amount of envy and anger which was there, which was like the idea that you are you're you're not stopped from anything. You're not you're not you're not allowed to be stopped from anything. Is one of the idea that pushed the revolutionaries to kind of claim everyone who's opposed to anything to be enemies of revolution, and and you know, and then kind of like the entire the wrath of the state falls on them. So I think that's a that's a that's a very interesting point that you make. Uh, yeah. Before we move, we should we like give like a brief idea of the timeline of the French Revolution. Obviously, the socio-economic aspect doesn't really work out. France was a country of twenty-four million, twenty-eight million people. It it had double the amount of GDP than its rival, than its nearest rival, Britain. It was successful um, because of the American Revolution to, to kind of like cut the wings of, of of Britain. Although that kind of led to France having being in debt. Where they eventually, like by 1791, they had like what, like 40 percent of their of their income was going to to the to the debt. So, should we should we set up the timeline of the revolution uh, at this point? Yeah, I mean, I, it, it's it's interesting because it kind of it follows, especially right after as the the kind of American Revolution comes to its close, uh, and then of right. course the creation of the the Constitution of the United States in 1787. Things start to open up in France, and 1789 is kind of the, the key year where um, things start to to move along and roll along. And that's when yep. the, as I mentioned, the estate general is is called by King Louis the Sixteenth. And the mechanism for this, it's 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 just maybe a little unfamiliar in the Anglo world. The king can kind of call up. It's kind of like a, a general government to change. The, I guess you could say the constitution of society or how a society is right. constituted and it's what's funny is that you know when you think of the french revolution i mean it really wasn't it was in part started by the elites of french society it was the french intellectuals and elites that that were for and drove the revolution in, in its initial days like this was actually kind of an elite driven event that that got out of control that got out of their hands that was turned to later in in let's say 1794 when you have a, a huge amount of violence taking place in france it's very much out of yeah. control in fact the some of the initial many of those who started the revolution at that point were already dead and you had right. a whole different generation of politicians and and leaders uh from various groups and maybe you know getting into the the various groups i mean you know we think of you know king louis the 16th and marie antoinette and antoinette being the of course the, the royalty but you know started by people like Marquis de Lafayette, who, of course, was yep. a part of the American Revolution, a great hero in America, thought that he could basically start a revolution in France along the lines of what happened in America and had a very, in many ways, limited view of what their revolution should be. He didn't actually advocate for abolishing the monarchy. He simply wanted to go to a mixed system, probably more in, in line with what Great Britain had, actually, uh, than anything else. Uh, unfortunately, you know, as much as, you know, Lafayette was admired in America and, and succeeded in, during the American Revolution, um, quickly things got out of control for him. And um, the, the mob eventually turned on Lafayette and eventually had to step aside, ended up in prison at some point uh, for a number of years, was actually in prison during the revolution. Um, but this led to various factions of uh 
higher levels of extremism, I would say, taking control, including yeah. the Girondins, who were kind of the first wave of French radicals, and then eventually the Jacobins, led by the, the kind of triumvirate of uh, Danton, Marat, and Robespierre, who's the most right. famous right. of the yep. three, kind of these brutal figures, uh, very different in their, in their own ways, uh, and, and I think kind of important figures, all who ended up, of course, as in many revolutions, uh, with violent deaths, um, right. which, of course, is if you want to say that there's a, a, a huge gap in between how the American Revolution ends and the French, the founding fathers of the United States, nearly all of them died old men in their beds, at, you know, among their loved ones, where almost all yeah. of the men who led the French Revolution died violently, either at the hands of the state or at the hands of a mob. And of course, right. that, you know, that's very telling as far as how things worked out. Yeah, no, you're you're right. So the 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 king uh, wanted to have the state general, which, as you rightly mentioned, uh, as a way of changing the constitution. By the, the the interesting part of the the revolutionaries at that point of time was even though uh, they thought that that gave them an idea of of taking you know matters in their own hands and essentially leading the country in in a chart, the two major mistakes which they made. Uh, was to have uh, the idea that the Fra French constitution would be secular, which means uh, the church had to, uh, you know, pay fealty to the to the French state to have any kind of and and the second thing that they wanted to have is uh, was uh, the French clergy to be elected. Now, obviously, the, the that kind of sowed the seeds of of a counter revolution. Because overall, like in every revolutionary society, majority of the people are normal people. They they wanted to go to their church. They wanted to have good food, and that's pretty much what they wanted to have a good marriage and good wife and uh, and a good house and good food and go to their churches. But so so I think that was the that was the one that was the one, two of the key mistakes of of the the cult of of reason that that the French Revolutionary started on. The second thing is. Um, uh, the, the the they completely lost control of of the sacrilege, didn't they? Like the the idea that the the mobs could be controlled once they have unleashed the passion of of, of revolutionary fervor and, and just essentially. So here's here's what happened. Um, the revolutionaries started to say that yes, the king is under the control of the revolutionary government. So even though we are not committing regicide. He's still going to just sign anything that we write. So that obviously wasn't going to be the case. So that was one of their biggest mistakes. The second, it wasn't like a franchise to everyone. Like women were still not al allowed to have any point. In fact, some of the revolutionaries were extremely opposed because they believed that, you know, they believed in the cult of reason. They thought no, women are not reasonable people. So <laughs> in a funny way, I mean, it kind of, I kind of like showed just how interesting uh, anything how anything can be justified you know by by reason you know you you can just you can just appeal to logic and reason and then you can just find justification from any for any political policy I and mean, again like like you said i mean there are reflections of that in our modern times um the third most important thing is their major mistake uh, which they which they tried to subvert the religious aspects of society and that and that and that's a turmoil that is still there in in france and and increasingly in in europe and in anglo-america you know overall uh, every revolutionary idea uh, goes against any kind of religion because religion by definition typifies a kind of hierarchy and uh, structure and 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 claim to a greater spirit and power which obviously no revolutionary wanted to wants to listen because they think humans are you know good and and reasonable and logical and perfect the way they come right. out and there is no higher power to be needed all we need is just our brains to be functioning so i think these are some of the deep differences of the of the french revolutionaries and you you mentioned danton marat marat was by my opinion like probably the most you know propagandist of, of all of them uh demoulet and robespierre those are the four uh the top four robespierre had uh a balancing uh, problem like he 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 by the time he was part of the of the revolutionary he had kind of like unleashed the terror and you know after the paris after the paris commune and you know the revolutions in Vendée, where they were like trying to crush the counter-revolutionaries and austria and prussia declared war on france and you know there was this complete chaos um so that was on one hand second 
Robespierre realized what every revolutionary realizes that at some point in time you have to be in the governing coalition and governing means uh, having some kind of authority and the moment you start telling people that there is literally no authority that should tie you down they are going to turn against you because they are going to see you in the exact same way as you uh, you know uh, degraced the 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 previous uh, authorities so um, <laughs> interestingly um, the 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 Austrian regime opposed the revolutionaries because the revolutionaries were these massive upstarts and bankers and lawyers who essentially like second grade elites who who had no uh, noblesse oblige and no power and no love for their own fellow citizens either. I mean, they were like they 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 the the revolutionaries hated the mobs also uh, because they thought that the mobs had literally they just used the mobs as pawns to take power. But once right. that they did take power, they couldn't control the mobs anymore because at that point of time, they were the authorities against whom people were throwing stones. <laughs> so Robespierre had this balancing act to do when, you know, the Revolutionary Council took power and there was this war on the Eastern Front and Britain was like trying to save all the, all the nobles and nobility. So they crushed down on their own people at that point of time because in their paranoid minds, on one hand, this is happening because they cannot control the the religious nature of of counter-revolutionaries because the priests and the and the carmelite nuns for example refused to say to take fealty to the revolutionary government they they refused that you know the carmelite nuns the 16 carmelite nuns who were killed in in the terror just you know went and sang uh, on on their way to the guillotines so on one hand the revolutionaries the the jacobins are thinking that you know what we are not being able to control the narrative you know, the, the religious, you know, people are still, you know, being religious and they're still kind of like pushing uh, the country to counter-revolution. On the other hand, they're paranoid because they're not being controlled, able to control the mob because they have they have realized suddenly that how, how it feels to be on top of a, of, of a chamber and looking down on, on the people below and the people and they can see the anger in their eyes because, you know, they're, they're mindless fanatics at that point of time, right? I mean, they're... they're yeah. The Paris Commune and the, and the, and the revolutionaries in Paris and the Saint Paulo's they are they're fundamentally just frothing in the mouth fanatics. They 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 believe in nothing. They believe in no boundaries. They believe in no authority. Nothing. Literally anyone who stops all that thing is like they 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 need stuff and that's it. They they don't care how it comes. They don't care that there are trade offs. Fanatics are fanatics. Like you know they can be religious. Now. this is kind of like a religion in a way. You know it's yeah. it's a it's a theological war at that point of time. Uh, and that is a good way to put it as a religion. It's interesting, you know, the, the, you talk about the, the God of reason, you know, not, neither godly nor reasonable. Um, That's right. But you're right. You're right about how and it is interesting. You know, of course, the elites kind of both unleashing the mobs, uh, especially on Paris, but throughout the country and then being eventually eaten by the mob, I, I think is very much a, a, a function of this system. I mean, I, it's oftentimes how revolutions get out of control. I mean, it was something that was very much, I mean, that's, I think even from the, the perspective of the founding fathers of the United States and some who were more, uh, more positive toward the French revolution, saw it as a continuation of the American revolution. It was the beginning of the kind of the mob violence, the arbitrary mob violence that started to change. I think the minds of some to think that, wow, you know, this is not, this is not the orderly revolution that we were a part of where, you know, when you had the, Boston Tea Party, you had, you know, they, they, you know, replaced the locks and they replaced, you know, they, they paid for the property that they damaged. I mean, that's, I mean, the, the American <laughs> Revolution was a very orderly affair in comparison. Right. Yeah. Some, some like mob action did take place. And in some cases, you know, you had men like John Adams defending British soldiers from, you know, you know, yeah. being arbitrarily. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's a, that's a huge difference. And, and of course, how these two revolutions uh, came to be what they, what they were, I think, especially when you read read the accounts, and there is one very good account by Governor Morris, who was a minister to France from the United States. He's the man who wrote the preamble to the Constitution, one of the great uh, great Americans of, of his time. Was in France during the beginning stages of the revolution, and noted how much the country beca become radicalized, how people have been arbitrarily murdered in the street i mean he actually witnessed somebody right. just get murdered you know saw a guy you know headless man going down the street being carried by the mob and noted how of course you know there was a difference of course in how many of the french intellectuals 
saw things as, you know, we can say the constrained versus the unconstrained view of, of human nature, uh, I think was, was very much a problem. But again, the, the unleashing right. of the mobs was, was a big part of this. And I, I, there was actually one thing that really struck me in one of the accounts that I read is that at one time, uh, a mob actually, a series of mobs broke into to several prisons to basically just execute um, the political prisoners there. The 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 the, the, the assembly essentially uh, not only did nothing to uh, punish the people who had carried out this violence, they actually awarded them uh, paid compensation for time they missed from work. I mean that's right. uh, and that's you know that's you know that, honestly you see you see some some similarities to, I think in 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 recent years where you know a political faction that's that's engaging in in mob violence is actually rewarded. Uh, by the political powers that be. And that's, I think, what you did get see in the French Revolution, that, of course, once you've you've unleashed that, that's a force that's very difficult to control, especially becomes as the mob becomes irrational and frothing and fanatical, as as you explained it, it it turns on those who initially unleashed it, especially those who are seen to be uh, insufficiently uh, committed to the cause and the, the, the really the religious fervor of this ideological cause, which of course is what led to the downfall of, of the, the, the Girondins and of course the, the Jacobins. Yeah. No, I think that's a fantastic way you described. I mean, I, first of all, talk about John Adams, the, the interesting thing about John Adams trying to defend the British soldiers is, but because he was appealing to order to, 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 to a higher order, like saying like, Hey, the British might be tyrants, but we are not tyrants. You know, we are the orderly, you know, citizens. We are the ones who listen to to virtue. And I think that's and that's a that's a fantastic. That wasn't the case in the French Revolution. And and the second point that you mentioned about um, how revolutionary powers essentially bestow um, their largesse. Uh, to the to the to their people who who do their parts, you know, and that's that creates a kind of bifurcation which we also saw for the first time in in France, you know. Before that, in the in the in the in the glorious revolution, or even like in the Cromwell's you know tyranny in 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 Britain, uh, that wasn't the case. There were like two fundamental forces fighting each other, but there was no case where the you know government was trying to kind of like uh, take distinct side. Uh, in 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 the case between and differentiating between their own citizens, whereas in France, as you absolutely rightly mentioned, they were being rewarded uh, for their for their acts of violence in in a similar way, which on one hand is, is something that we see even today, and and the second hand, which we don't see, but which might, is because that was also one of the reasons why the counter revolutions started in France. You know, on one hand, you know, in, in deep parts of France, who are those who were maybe not extremely rich, but they were very happy with the status quo. And, the, and France was at that point of time the largest power in, in Europe. It was far, far bigger than Britain. Uh, and, and, and Britain had almost like lost half of their empire at that point of time. So, uh, you know, they, and, and they were like Catholics and they were, you know, very much tied to the, to the French nobility. They, the, the, the revolution was a distant affair to them. And, you know, being led by some intellectuals in a Parisian cafe uh, with a fancy wig and without any breeches to wear. And, you know, and, and, and these people see that there are some random mobs from Paris who are going and doing, you know, massive amount of violence and they're being paid by the state. And they are the ones doing violence against us. And that's also one of the things which it reminds me. Um, during the, the event when Austria and Prussia uh, declared war and France declared war on Austria and Prussia, the revolutionaries, because they were daft, because they were like stupid, they they had to immediately go and appeal to the normal French people and say, hey, this is our war and we are being invaded and you have to fight. And the French people who up until that point of time were constantly being abused by the revolutionaries saying like, you know, they're Catholics or they're you know, religious people and they're you know, dumb people in the, in the villages, suddenly see that they have to fight two massive countries on the eastern fringes of, 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 of their country, and they have to fight under the banner of a power which is opposed to their way of life, to their Catholicism, and, and to their king. And in a funny way, that is reflective of how we see um, 
the, the army recruitment going down in America, you know, because <laughs> because yeah. the revolutionary powers of our times are asking normal people who they completely hate to come and join the wars of revolutions abroad and, you know, spread democracy. So in a, in a funny way, like obviously, the, I mean, it's not di a direct comparison, but but there are kind of like, you know, rhymes of, of history that that's, you know, that we can see these days. And um, so obviously, you know, the French state, no way it could have had power because they were rife, because reason was used for literally every single violence that could have been done. Uh, they lost by at that point of time, by 1794, 93, 94, they've lost a uh, majority of the, uh, you know, of the support of the of the heartland of France, especially in Condé, where there's a massive revolution going on. And the violence that the revolutionaries unleashed on the counter-revolutionaries, 30,000 people died um, in, in a matter of days, which was, and, and those were the days when there were, after, it was the, after the Industrial Revolution, there were like presses, you know, pe people were about to read and they were, they were being able to read what's happening in other parts of their own country. Um, so that was, they've lost, you know, the control of their own people, majority of the people. France is disunited, uh, mob rioting happening in the major cities. They had no food. Two major powers have declared war on them. Um, and they have killed their their nobility, and including the the people like Duke of Orleans, who actually originally supported the revolution. That's also something that you know we need to think about. Like a lot of our elite uh, likes to side with revolutionary powers and the, and the mob violence, but they are the ones who die the first. Duke of Orleans, for example, was the he even went and signed on the charter against his his cousin, the king, and uh, <laughs> and and he was killed by the revolutionary mob. But at that point of time, literally no one was uh, allowed to to have any kind of uh, you know uh, reason anymore in a, in a it, funny, it ironic it way it is amazing it is amazing how each one of the leaders at some point ends up suffering this fate not all of them lose their head but but many and most do i mean you know figures even like for instance thomas paine who was of course a, a, a key figure in the american revolution you know goes to france and he's you know leading the charge then realizes things are getting out of control and says well maybe we shouldn't kill louis the 16th that's a you know kind of brutal thing to do and then they throw him in in, in a prison cell and he's sitting there in a cell wondering what happened right. only got pro really got he was saved by just uh an accident of fate i mean just because he was yeah. kind of quiet yeah. and they, they missed him on the day they were supposed to execute him there were so many executions going on and people just of course being arbitrarily executed for silly and ridiculous things you know not showing enough fervor uh, for the revolutionary cause, could you could get your head chopped off for it. And there was actually right. one, I thought, very almost like humorous and extremely French account of one person who was uh, executed uh, for serving sour wine uh, to, to <laughs> troops, patriotic troops fighting for our glorious cause. Uh, the, the, a very French way to, to be yeah. uh, executed for serving sour wine. But, but it kind of goes to the, the eventually the arbitrary nature a lot of the executions and the guillotine. When you look at a, a kind of roster of, you know, you look at kind of the bibliography of all the different uh, French leaders of the revolution, almost all of them met that, that violent fate, either be, by being butchered by the mob or being guillotined uh, in the case of many. And I think yeah. that especially when Danton, who was one of the leading figures of the revolution, yeah. was accused, of course, not being sufficiently uh, for the revolution, when he was sent to the to the guillotine, he he basically shouted out to Robespierre, you know, they're going to come for you. It's you're they're going to come for you next. They're getting me today, but uh, yeah. you don't have long. And it turned out to be true because even one as pure and fanatical as Robespierre suffered the same fate. He suffered the same fate as what he gave to so many other people. Yeah, especially brutally, even like he his 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 entire trial was uh, in a matter of three days. He didn't have any chance to appeal. He didn't even have any chance to speak. And when Robespierre was taken to the guillotine, he, he was tied to the to the blade with his face up, looking up, so that he could see the blade coming down. The people who put Robespierre to death were so angry at the violence he has done but the entire coup against the jacobines was was something to completely you know it, it it's almost similar to how and again that no no one really learns their lessons like we saw the exact same thing happening in soviet, soviet union for example or, or in china but the way our coup in romania um but the way revolution
factories died in the French Revolution, especially the Jacobins, and how their how their terror just came to an end on a very sudden way. Uh, within like a week, their entire leadership was just completely demolished and destroyed. Is something to behold. Um, so, what happened after that? Like they they had. I mean, this is the this is the thrust. And before we end. Um, so the French state, they have lost power, they have lost their communes, they've lost the mobs. The mobs were put down by uh, 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 <laughs> they, they, named, they named it the directory, which is like one of the most corrupt uh, organizations that they could have. They were, they were they were doing all these kind of they were, they were bribing the military to kind of like keep order because they've realized, you know, uh, that we cannot have mob violence and we can't even live in this, you know, in, in the cities anymore. So the directory wanted to have order on the streets and they increasingly started to give power to the to the military um, to maintain order. And then this young 26-year-old officer who's, who's five points, you know, five foot six inches, not very, you know, uh, tall, is not very very good looking he was very shy and awkward uh not even from a i mean from a dubious nobility like he wasn't uh, he wasn't an actual aristocrat i mean his father was extremely snobbish and prude and wanted to have like the the idea of of, of putting his son up in in one of those places so he had that kind of like a a, a very you know a very small town fighting spirit in a way like he he wanted to like there, there's this young officer you know in the french army he was not a french by the way was bullied uh, because of his skin color and because you know of his of his hair you know the greasy hair and all that kind of stuff um <laughs> and 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 he comes and uh and he takes an opportunity and and uh and he restores order in a way so um it, it and is he amazing it is absolutely fascinating the the how randomly this one guy plots his his own way. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you know through all this you have Napoleon who was of course grew up in Corsica who was actually as as a very young man is a kind of Corsican nationalist. I mean he's not even a very big fan of France. In fact, he he dreams as a young man of liberating his home country uh, from right. France, which is remarkable and of course he spells his name slightly differently as a young man with uh bou instead he, he basically changes it to become more french later in oh, life french. whereas he, yeah. he rolled into his italian uh heritage when he was when he was younger um but of course the revolution you know for all that it brought and, and the violence that it brought and you know the the destruction, I think, of many of the French norms in society and how much it laid low uh, a country that by many stretches was the most powerful in all of Europe. I mean, it was more powerful, certainly uh, in population and in their economy than Great Britain was. Yeah. Um, a country that had been lo laid low by the now at war with uh, multiple countries. It's, it's right. looking like, you know, this, this country really could fall. You have a man who who clearly from a young age uh, shows ambition and talent and steps into the breach of of this revolution as a man who, from a very young age, showed incredible ability to to learn and adapt. Um, there's no question that despite Napoleon's maybe you could say somewhat diminutive stature, certainly didn't look particularly remarkable, had remarkable abilities of mind and study and learning and, and an opportunity, you know, if you say from the, 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 uh, the popular game of Thrones show where there's one character who says, well, chaos is a ladder. That's Napoleon right. saw this chaos and it, it was his ladder. And yeah. especially as a young officer joining with the Jacobin faction, which I think is very interesting. A man who ultimately becomes associated with the reaction in France to the revolution, it started out as one of the, the Jacobin radicals. And I think it kind of makes sense given what kind of person Napoleon was. I mean, he was a guy who was able to put himself in positions in his society to always succeed and to shine above his peers. And of course, joining the military, which initially was, was very fraught. The, the French military under the revolutionary powers is one in which your life as a as a as a leader and officer often wouldn't last very long. I mean, if you if you if you messed up or if you really didn't mess up at all, you could end up losing your position quickly guillotined. 
Um, right. But Napoleon, even in his very earliest stages, I mean, we're talking early 20s, showed enormous promise on the battlefields, uh, especially in, in Italy, which is where he really, I think, cut his teeth on his military career. Uh, show those who officers who were older than him that this is a man of incredible ability and talent and ambition. And every step of the way demonstrates his superiority of his martial skill, which ultimately becomes so important, of course, to his in, entire career and becoming, you know, the, the kind of Caesar of, of France um, is really built in these in this era that's incredibly turbulent and one in which, you know, it's hard to see. Uh, something rising out of that that's that's of this nature, but it does because of the chaos and because of all the things going on around the revolution. Yeah, I think I think this is a perfect time to to kind of lead to the next two episodes, which is going to be on on uh, the the rise of Napoleon in the and, and his social changes uh, within France and whether he can be considered. I mean, one of the fundamental questions is whether Napoleon was great. You know, I mean, whether Napoleon was great in a traditional great, great sense, like in a good sense, or whether Napoleon was just such a force of history that he's considered great, regardless of how, uh, what he did and how he ended up being. Uh, so I think that's one of the things that we're going to discuss more in the next few episodes. And obviously the, the fall of Napoleon, what kind of, you know, fundamentally, this is a, a podcast of reconsidering history. So um, we are going to find out and discuss more about Napoleon's personal rise and fall, failings and, and uh, prodigious talents and uh, Napoleon's military strategies. But before that, just uh, uh, on, a, on a very short note, um, Bonaparte is a character of history who fundamentally stood against any single theory of, of, of history. Like he was, his rise is in, in, a, in, a, in an interesting way, uh, a slap in the face of this, of the idea of structural history, of, of this idea of Marxist history, that, you know, there are interpersonal forces that decide human destinies. Here is this guy who single-handedly changed uh, the destiny of France and Europe. Like, that is, I, I, if, if that doesn't, um, I, one might disagree on how, whether Napoleon is great or bad, and we, we kind of like, obviously, we kind of fall on the similar instances, but we can have, we might have people who disagree with us, but to deny the fact that this guy is a powerful, powerful force of nature is to deny uh, the vitality of, of historical forces anyway. Um, what, to, before we end, what books would you recommend um, on the French Revolution? Yeah, you know, I, I think for me, like one of the, one of the, one of the best is actually uh, Alexis de Tocqueville. Um, who wrote yep. a book about the kind of the origin? It's called the 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 old regime and the French Revolution. Now, people know Tocqueville from Democracy in America, mostly in the United States. But toward right. the end of his life, he wrote, I think, an, an excellent. He didn't actually get to finish. He wanted to write uh, basically a trilogy of books. Only got a chance to write write one. But really, getting into the origins of the the revolution, the explosion of, and Tocqueville himself came from a a more uh, you could say noble family that actually suffered some of the consequences uh, of the revolution, uh, but yeah. really breaks down the kind of societal forces that were in play in France. I think gives it, he was, Tocqueville is really the great kind of, I guess you could say cultural anthropologist uh, of that time. And really as much as he understood the American people, I think he really understood his own people too, and, and understands the forces that were in play during the, the French revolution, which I think he kind of says that, you know, yes, the the ancient regime uh, was tyrannical, but in some sense, through everything, you know, we we ended it right back where we started. France is still very much like it was before the revolution. Like the people are very similar in their attitudes and their behaviors. In some cases, liberty actually has had been restricted following the revolution rather than rather than uninhibited. And noted very strongly in how the character again, the character of a country really really matters in the sense that. The French, who had been very much suppressed uh, during the times before the revolution, while they had a great number of individual geniuses who, who embraced liberty, were very unsuited to creating a country that would be based on laws and order of the kind that existed 
in 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 the Amer in America in the United States, and I think it's it's very clear from his account why things went haywire during the French Revolution. So I, I highly recommend his account. Another one, of course, is uh, Edmund Burke's Reflections on the Revolution in France, which was uh, actually written as a series of letters to a French friend in yep. in in France, which is kind of the I mean, if you you talk about which is interesting because Burke. What makes it so notable is Burke was actually people think of him as kind of this very conservative figure in history. At the time, he was thought of as more kind of a liberal uh, figure in England. So it was surprising to see a man who actually supported the American revolutionaries in, in their cause turn mm -hmm. so strongly against the French Revolution in breaking down why something that was based on metaphysical principles that ignored the traditions of history, that ignored the long experience was doomed to failure, was doomed to destruction. And in fact, even Burke called the, the idea that, well, he said that the end result of this is going to be a Caesar-like figure, a military general taking over uh, the revolution. That's what this is going to end up with. You're going to get, order will be restored, but it's going to be a, a military tyrant of some kind, which is interesting, you know, leading into the yeah. rise of Napoleon. That's basically what ended up happening. They had a military general take over. Um, and so incredibly, you know, wise and I think uh, important account to, to read of, of the revolution uh, for sure. How about yourself? What, what books would you recommend? I absolutely love how you categorized and ended with, with Burke's uh, warning about restoring, restoring of order. I, I, it's obviously, yes, I mean, Edmund Burke, if you need to study about the French Revolution, I think that's a book that everyone should should read it. It's very cheap to buy on Amazon, by the way, like, you know, and it's, it's beautifully written as well. Like, I mean, the way he talks about how chivalry is lost with the rise of bankers and lawyers stuck to me uh, from the first time when I when I when I read it. Um, I would highly recommend people to to read Hilaire Belloc's The French Revolution. It's a it's a it's not a massive book. It's it's a foundational book in my life in a way that made me think about the the role of religion in society and even the role of religion in revolutionary mindset it's 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 unlike anything that one would probably read about that you know this this even for those who think they're rational even for those who are think they're atheists you know there was this time you and i both remember during the during the early days of of the war on terror when there was this huge bunch of new atheist movement that was starting about how you know religion is the ultimate cause and everywhere we should have like this this freedom and this this freedom from religion and this and this march of atheism and one of the things that always people used to talk about in those days like have you ever seen an atheist society commit crimes never has happened in human history you'll always see like things in in religious societies and i always used to think that have you guys not read Hilaire Belloc you know the, the 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 one of the biggest major powers of Europe turned completely atheistic and saw some of the most gruesome mass violence in human history and and the idea about the, this how the French Revolution happened and how the Catholic clergies were you know completely opposed and how the 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 Masonic and all the liberal movements happened within the 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 the, the edifice of French society is something that changed me. So I think I would absolutely recommend that book. Also, um, as a passing, I might recommend Chateaubriand's uh, From the Grave, Beyond the Grave. Um, I think that's, a, it's a, it's, again, it's a very short book. It's a little quirky at times, and he's, a, he's obviously a, a, a monarchist, so uh, it's, it's, a, it's an acquired taste. Um, <laughs> so to speak, for those who know. Um, but uh, but it's, it's also a really good book about how a hierarchy in society is is a given. It's going to happen regardless of whether you want it or not. You know, you can aspire to have a society which is completely classless or completely non-hierarchical and completely equal. You are never going to get it. In fact, you're going to get tyranny. Um, so there is always going to be a hierarchy, whether it's a benevolent hierarchy or a malevolent hierarchy or something. Uh, it is important to consider. So I think that's a book that I'm going to I'm going to recommend as well. Uh, that's that's excellent. I think you know we're we're ending off here. You know, with the that final statement. You know, talking about the the how the American and French Revolution split off, went their own yes. directions, with one revolution ending up with liberty, a, a country created by founding father. You know, founding fathers, the father of our country, George Washington, a republic that lasts for over two centuries, hopefully many more. 
uh, and one that ends up in uh, a, a reign of terror. And it ends up with a tyranny at the end of it that in some ways mirrors and sometimes supersedes the, the tyranny that came before, which, of course, is how most revolutions in history end up. So uh, Americans should be quite thankful uh, for how differently uh, things turned out in the United States, that that there was a great deal of wisdom about human nature and, and good government that led to, to very different outcomes uh, for these countries. But I think this is a good point to to uh, to to stop. And uh, and because, of course, in the next coming episodes, we're going to discuss the hallmark career of Napoleon Bonaparte, his campaigns uh, that took place and the, the impact that he had on Europe that was uh, aflame in revolution and warfare. And then a follow up episode dealing with, I think, what, of course, interests people about the great men of history, why Napoleon, like Caesar, will always be one of these curious characters, which is his dramatic fall from grace and his dramatic <laughs> fall from power that's just as dramatic as his rise, uh, this, this, this great man of history uh, that ends up uh, isolated alone on an island, uh, dying at a young age, uh, I, I think is a human drama that's, that's worth replaying and understanding. Thank you, as always, for, for joining me, Smatra, this week. Until next week. Wonderful.